Now, if you spoke to me on Tuesday, this message for tonight was rapidly developing into a mini-series. Um, I, I started to, to sit down and jot different ideas of how I could handle the message. Uh, and honestly, I had about 10 distinctive ways uh, with, within no time. Um, and yet, with that in mind, uh, and the number of times certain passages were coming up and, and coming to my mind, um, I, I genuinely believe that this new series that we'll be starting uh, in a few weeks' time uh, in Second Corinthians called Look Up is, um, is God's timing. Uh, and um, there's a lot to be said about encouragement uh, and seeking Him in difficult times. Of the ways that I could have preached this message, I could have started with how Christ dealt with uh, difficult times in His earthly ministry. Everywhere, every time he turned around, there was someone doing something stupid and, and let him down. You think, what am I even doing with these guys? What, what, what's the point trying to see of these guys? And we could have looked at how Jesus dealt with discouraging things happening to him and yet how he did not give up. We could have looked at, at joy being a, a fruit of the Spirit, but also the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we could have talked about fighting for fruitfulness, fighting for that uh, continuing growth in God. I could have went to Ezra chapter 4 and how they started to rebuild the walls and rebuild the city of God and yet how the neighboring nations discouraged the people from building. And boy, isn't it true that so often whenever we're going great guns for God, other people have a way of discouraging us from building on that. Isaiah 40 is a great chapter, uh, saying that God is an everlasting God, creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow weary or tire, but gives power to the thin, even the young. The youth will tire. The fittest among us, the most energetic among us, will eventually tire. But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. No matter how long we keep going, eventually we'll run out of steam if we're trying to make it on our own. But God is a God who gives strength and renews strength. You see, Scripture has plenty to say on the subject because it is so real and it is a powerful battle. And it's a common battle. And I think Romans 15 is right when it says that through the encouragement of Scripture, we have hope. Let me say a few things about discouragement. I don't think you ever see it coming. I don't think you, you can see it coming up until you are already discouraged and you identify it within yourself. It has a way of sneaking up on you. It can come disguised as busyness. It can come disguised as a rough patch or, or justified frustration because everyone's just idiots. Whatever way you want to look at it, it has a way of sneaking up. And however you look at it, it has a way of bringing us to a point where you think, you know what? Why do I even bother? Well, what's the actual point of me doing all this? I, I spend so much time putting myself through all this. And sure, look, they're going ahead and just do the other thing anyway. Well, I might as well just not bother. Discouraged. 
I'm not encouraged to do it again. I'm not encouraged to, to repeat that. I'm discouraged. I'm not even going to try anymore. I'm not going to do anything. Pull back. Withdraw. And you get to the point where you'd either give up on church or give up on a certain ministry or give up on God even because you suddenly realize, you know what, I don't even really care. I, don't, I really, honestly, honestly, I don't even really care. So what? You might not even think of yourself as being discouraged. You might just say, you know what, I'm just tired. You might even just blame on someone else. As a pastor, discouragement is a bit of an occupational hazard because at heart as pastors, we're an idealistic bunch and um, that the world is not an idealistic place. Um, I'd suggest unrealistic expectations are a really strong source of being discouraged. We think that everything's going to be a smooth line. We think that our Christian life is going to be just a smooth upward line and it doesn't work like that. Or we think, you know what, if I just talk to people, if I say I'm sorry, if I do this and if I do this, then they'll, they'll, they'll see that I'm trying to make amends and they'll see that I, I, I'll, they'll apologize and, and, and you know, we can renew this friendship, we can renew this relationship and it'll all be easy and it doesn't happen and you go, well, why did I even bother? And we have unrealistic expectations. And yet, if we are truly to live for God in this world, the real world, whether we are full-time uh, as a pastor or missionary or whether you volunteer, so often we don't anticipate the ups and downs in the Christian life and the Christian walk. We don't always anticipate hardships, where they come from and when they come from. Yet we must expect to live for God to be hard because Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. We must expect ministry to be difficult and sometimes discouraging. And to be the kind of person that we're called to be, who selflessly serves, who takes everything that a person has, it's difficult to give yourself like that to people whenever people are imperfect. It's demanding. And so often we find ourselves going against the flow of the people around us, and it is discouraging. Why am I even bothering? Why am I trying so hard to live for God at work whenever it doesn't seem to make a difference? Why should I say anything in school whenever it doesn't make a difference? Unmet expectations. Another source could be the fact that we take things personally. Um, Paul was writing to Timothy and he says, Demas, has forsaken us. He doesn't say, you know, he's, he's forsaken the work or he's forsaken God. He says, he's forsaken us. Paul took it personally. He says, he didn't just leave the work. He, he left me. I felt, I felt that there was this part of me just ripped out of me when Demas just walked away into the world again. I'm saying this to try and give you a perspective of that whenever I'm talking about being discouraged, I'm not talk about, talking about feeling a little sad. 
or you know, you're having an off day. I'm talking about wanting to give up because you're at that point where it seems that no matter what you do or what you say or what you try, it's either not going to work or not make any difference and you feel utterly helpless and frustrated and demotivated. To me, that's the expression of discouragement that I'm thinking about. And I also want to say this. Um, I've been there. And I know that a sermon is not going to fix it. So if you're feeling discouraged and you're going, okay, Jeff, give me the three points and I can write them down and away I go. It doesn't work like that. I wish it did. But me teaching you is not necessarily going to change how your heart feels. But here's the thing. If I were to change your circumstances, the circumstances that are discouraging you, the truth is that's not going to change things for you either. That's not going to fix the discouragement. You'll fix your discouragement onto something else because there's a a, a disconnect in your heart where your mind knows that God is good and your mind knows that God is loving and you know in your mind that God is sovereign, but there's this part in your heart that refuses to rejoice in that truth. And the truth is that the only thing that brings back the joy in our heart in knowing him and walking with him can only come from your own personal walk with God. And I think it really comes by surrounding yourself with godly people and feeding and embedding these truths that we'll discuss in a minute into your heart, not just your head. It will not happen quickly, unfortunately. It will not happen easily, unfortunately. It is a wrestle to face up to what is stealing your joy. It is not easy to identify it. It is not easy to confront it. But when we identify it and we bring it to God, we can defeat it. We're going to the book of Jude. Now, let me just map it up very easily, okay? The two halves of the book. The first half, um, he's identifying that there's problems. And then the second half, he's identifying the response to those problems. So in verse 8, he's saying, look, listen, there's going to be people who are attracted to what God is doing in this place, but there's going to be people and they're not going to get it. So there's going to be people and they'll, have, they'll be dangerous because they're going to undermine the authority of the church. They're going to undermine scripture. They're going to undermine leadership. They're going to undermine it all by bringing their own ideas, their own personality, their own popularity into it. And the truth is they'll hate things that they don't understand. And so increasingly they'll do what feels right rather than what the Bible says is right. Sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? I don't understand what the Bible says, so I'm I'm not going to bother with that. I feel I'd rather do this. I feel like it makes more sense if God wants me to be happy, so I'm going to pursue that. And then the response, then their actions are exposed and there's murmuring and complaining in verse 16. And so the response then is to rise to the challenge. And even though it's difficult swimming against the flow, do the hard things. Keep doing the hard things. Remember the teachings. Build each other up. Keep one another in the love of God. And have mercy and patience on those who are struggling. That's not easy. 
especially whenever those people who are struggling maybe sort themselves out, excuse me, and then struggle again or mess up again. And it's the same thing. It's because how many times do I have to forgive this person? Two times, three times, four times? Remember Jesus said seven times? No, 70 times, seven times. You've got to keep going. That's hard. That's hard. So what's God's solution for defeating discouragement? How do we, if the call in Jude is to keep on doing these things, how do we keep going in doing those things? How do we keep doing them? It's the last verses of Jude. Verses 24 and 25 of Jude. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Maybe those seem like just a nice wee benediction, a nice wee way to close off a letter. But I think they hold the key. Three simple truths to encourage people in doing the hard things, to keep on doing the hard things when they feel like giving up and walking away. Number one, who God is. Number two, what God has. And number three, what God can do. So number one, who God is. He is the only God. This is so encouraging for us. Our God is the only God. There is no one like him. Nothing compares. Nothing can even come close to who our God is. You're not going to understand him because his thoughts are not, our thoughts are not his thoughts. Our ways are not his ways. And it's not just, well, if I went and got a degree, then maybe I could attain some level. Or maybe if I read up a little, or maybe if I did my quiet times every day, maybe I could understand enough and get... No, we don't even come close. And for Jude, this is a huge deal. Jude lived in the world of the Greeks and the Romans where they had hundreds and hundreds of gods. Minor gods, main gods, and you know your Greek and your Roman mythology. In Greece, there was the pantheon of gods, the huge temple full of statues to as many gods as they could think of, even to an unknown god that just fried Paul's head in Acts 17. He got so frustrated with it all. But in all these verses that I was looking at this week, there was this familiar thing that kept coming out that it's so easy, it is so easy to think that there are other forces out there that are as powerful as God or as strong as God that compete with our God. You watch, all right, we're coming into sort of October this week, which means Halloween. And like a lot of movies and stuff on TV are going to be Halloween themed. But you ever notice like in some of those ones where, you know, there's something terrible happen and it's kind of... Um, demonic or kind of occultish or whatever and then there's the little priest who comes in and goes "Ooh, i'm holding my little cross i'm trying to flick you with some water and like the demon goes pff, pff, and, and he sends him flying across the room and say like, that doesn't 
say, no, no, that's got nothing to do with it. It's got nothing like that. It's, that you, it's easy to think that it's like good and evil are locked in this big epic struggle. And who, what way is it going to go? Sometimes it looks like the devil's winning. Sometimes it looks like Jesus is winning. And oh, it's really tight. That's not how this is. There's not some cosmic arm wrestle going on. There is no one like our God. No one comes close. No power in heaven or earth or below the earth compares to our God. And so imagine above all this commotion, Jude's voice declaring, there is one God. The Jews, they declared it every day. The Shema in Deuteronomy 6 they said, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohenu Adonai Echad. O Israel, hear. The Lord our God is one Lord. There's no one like him. And they just announced that over their day, right at the start every day. There's no one like our God. Scripture resounds with this great encouragement. There is no one like our God. Some people sometimes think that Satan is all-powerful. Sometimes they think that he is all-knowing, like he, he can listen in on our prayers, or that he can hear the thoughts that we're thinking, or that if we say something, that he was there and he can listen. Satan is a created being, like the rest of us. He doesn't come close to our God. Yes, he is powerful. Yes, he is mighty. Yes, he is dangerous. But he is nothing in the hands of our God. And what an amazing thought when we are feeling discouraged. When we get to the point when we think Satan has the victory in our lives, that Satan has the victory in our church, he has no real power compared to the one who holds us in his hand. God reigns over all, King of kings, Lord of lords, undisputed. Discouragement, I think, comes when we get God out of perspective. But think of the words of the chorus we sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. See him as he really is. Get him in perspective. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The light of his glory and grace. That perspective gives us assurance, hope, confidence, encouragement to keep going. Next one. Not only who God is, but what God has. Be to him glory and majesty, dominion and power. How glorious and majestic is our God. Whenever we're discouraged, whenever we want to give up, we may know that he is. We may say that he is all these things. We might start rhyming them off. But my experience of discouragement is that knowing it is not the same as rejoicing in it. Now, we're in the middle of the Rugby World Cup, and I've been getting up early to watch a lot of the matches uh, now, for some of you, you'll see the score and you'll not even register it. You'll be like, I don't even know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I just, some team scored some points and the other team scored some more points. Hmm. 
You know the score, but it doesn't bring you any joy. Then there are the fans who get up at 5 a.m. because they need to watch the pre-match. They need to sing the anthems. And not only do we know the score, but it is the knowledge that thrills us and makes us sing. Now, Ireland's score yesterday would discourage most. For the record, I reckon that they're doing this to help the game in Japan, and it was a wonderful selfless thing that they did. <laughs> but anyway, Isaiah 40 shouts this out with a powerful way, who God is. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and hills in a balance? Who has measured? The Spirit of the Lord. What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Go on. Guys, someone, explain to me. Who, who can compare to my God? See, we need to remember that all the glory and majesty are God's. And sometimes we're too busy to stop and realize this, to be still and know that he really is God and what that means to be God. And we need to keep pursuing those truths until they move us. But the best way to do that is to spend time with the real fans who get excited about the scores. Think about the rugby. The best way to get excited about some of those matches, if you're not interested, isn't just getting up at 5 a.m. Because sometimes in, in the Christian circles, they'll say, oh, you want to get excited, right? Well, read more books. Like that's ever been a way to get happier. You know, read more books. Oh, do I have to? Ah, oh, homework. <coughs> Depends on the book, I suppose. But it's not about academics. It's not about studying more, learning more, being disciplined more. The trick to getting excited about the things of God is the exact same way as getting excited about the rugby. It's about getting up with those fans and spending time with those fans until you're saying, okay, I don't know why these guys are really excited, but I'm, I'm, I want to know more. I want to get into it. That's what happens. Folks, whenever you lose sight of who God is, get yourself alongside people who are rejoicing and celebrating the fact that God is who He is. And these attributes that He has and that infectious enthusiasm for God will rub off. Do you remember uh, in, when Moses was really discouraged in Exodus 33, he came down from this mountaintop experience with God, and he was buzzing. He was so excited. And then he, he, turned, he comes down around the mountain, and he finds that all this time they've been worshiping a golden calf that they built while he was away. So he goes back up the mountain with God. And in verse 18 of Exodus 33, he says, Show me your glory. In other words, God, I need some encouragement. Show me a glimpse of who you are because I need to be reminded that this is worth it, that everything that I'm doing is worth it. Show me your glory. 
and then responds, God reveals a glimpse of his back, and Moses comes down the mountain, and Scripture tells us that his face was glowing with that exposure, that millisecond exposure to the person of God, and the people of Israel had to make him wear a veil. Such was the impact, that small exposure to the glory of God. The people didn't get it, but they couldn't deny the reality of spending time with Moses then afterwards. Folks, you may not be in a position where you feel that you're shining. Get yourself alongside people who are. And be, and allow that to feed you and nourish you. Don't try to do this alone. Don't try and defeat discouragement by yourself. When you are discouraged, spend time with people who are shining. God has glory and majesty. He also has dominion and authority. Psalm 115 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. And he does all that he pleases. Our God is answerable to no one. It's not for him to be running it to anyone any time to justify his action. He doesn't owe you a reason. Even when we think Satan is running wild in our churches or in our lives or in our families and we can't understand what's happening and it feels like he's this unstoppable force, he is only able to do what God has allowed him to do. Remember Job chapter 1? In the throne room outside of Job's awareness, he was totally unaware of what was going on. God sets the boundaries time and time again to Satan's course of action. We should not limit ourselves in how we think of God's power and authority. It is impossible to think too big of his power and authority. In Pilgrim's Progress, that amazing book, if you haven't read it, you need to get a copy of it. You need to read Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Christian, the main character in the story, is on the road where he meets two people timorous and mistrust they're going the wrong way on the road and they warn christian that there are vicious lions up ahead that he should turn back like they are christian's tempted and then he's told by another traveler that the lions are real and yes they are vicious but they are chained securely satan is a lion seeking someone to devour but he and his demons are chained by the perfect will of God who loves us and wants what is best for us. It is so easy to become discouraged when we look at all the evil running rampant in the world. We can come to a place when we say either God doesn't care or he is unable to do anything about it. But that logic is not based on biblical truth. Satan is chained by the sovereign hand of God. Do you remember when Job lost everything? His emotions are up and down. He's all over the place. And he accuses God of all sorts of things in chapter 31. And then his friends, they pitch in. They're shouting their uh, things. You can't talk to God like that. You can't talk to God like that. But he's, he's just so discouraged. And he's struggling. And he lashes out. And he says, why do I bother wasting my time with God? <coughs> Excuse me. 
if this is my, if this is all I'm getting for, if this is my reward, why am I bothering? God's response comes in chapter 38. Excuse me. Let me give you the gist of it. Start chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. Put on your big boy trousers. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of there? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Excuse me, joy. That goes on for 70 verses across two chapters where God's just going, come on, where are you? Come on, you talk to me. If you want to, you want to call me in today, come on, where are you when all this stuff was happening? I don't think I need you, Job, to calling me into question. Brilliant verses about God rejecting completely this notion that he has to be held to account or give you an answer. Job couldn't understand at that point what God was doing. I don't think he ever really got to grips with it this side of eternity, perhaps. This is where so much of my own discouragement can come from. I want to know. I'm that sort of person who needs to know. I need to know why this is happening. I need to know how this is happening. I don't like not knowing what the plan is. Because, hey, God, if it's me, then I need to know so I can change. God, if it's not me, then, like, why? What's, what's, what's the deal here? Truth is, those verses in Job, I don't know if they're supposed to be encouraging or not. 70 verses of, uh, who do you think you are to talk to me like that, Job? I don't know if that's supposed to be encouraging, or if it's a rebuke, if it's a scolding. But God's answer is spot on. You don't get to talk to me like that, Job. You're not told because I don't answer to you. You answer to me. And by the way, if I did tell you, you wouldn't get it. In the battle for our hearts and minds, in our darkest moments, we need to remember that God has all the glory and majesty and dominion and authority. We're starting 2 Corinthians in a couple of weeks. Let me read you one of the passages that I'm excited about studying and preaching to you. 2 Corinthians 4 says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. <coughs> Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us, excuse me, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. It is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, 
it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. So we do not lose heart. We don't get discouraged. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. We don't understand why it's happening this way. But we know the one who's working it out. And so we trust him. Who God is, what God has. Let's just close very quickly. What God can do. What can God do for us in this fight against discouragement? You see, the most common feeling that comes with discouragement is that we're unable to do anything about it. We're unable to change things. We're unable to do anything. But Jude once again points us to God and says, Now unto him who is able. We may not be able, but God is able. Scripture is full of reminders for this truth. Let me go to Second Corinthians yet again, chapter 9. and says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. I'm excited by Second Corinthians. You may know those verses. You may even say that you believe that they are true. But do you rest on them? Do you lean in on them? Rely on them and trust them when things aren't necessarily going your way? This verses say that we can go on and stand in His presence with great joy. See, this is telling us that there will come a point when God will complete the work that be, He began in us when we were saved. Christ's redemptive work on the cross means that we're no longer under condemnation. We're free from the penalty of sin, but it doesn't always feel like we're free from the presence and power of sin around us. But until then, God is keeping us going. It can be hard at times living for God in a sinful world. And sometimes people will say, oh, Jeff, it must be hard for you. I think it's the opposite. I, I have this church bubble around me. And I understand that for others here it could be harder. Who perhaps feel surrounded by people who are criticizing and, and looking to stand on you every time you mess up. But you see, Jude's trying to teach us two things here. Yes, this life is hard. But we have to keep going. But God is the one who keeps us going. I'm not saying this fight against discouragement is easy. I'm saying <clears throat> that we can get to that place where Paul says we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Scripture teaches us to cultivate joy in the midst of sorrow through the daily habit of looking for the goodness of God each day. Happiness in him comes one day at a time. So don't wish for yesterday. Don't get all nostalgic on me, longing for the good old days to return. See, the problem with nostalgia is that it often is a cover for discontent of today. It's dissatisfaction with what God is doing today. If we live in the past, wishing things were going backwards, 
longing for some blessings that we no longer have, we miss out on what God is trying to do today. Wasn't it Solomon that said in Ecclesiastes 7, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Don't fall into that trap. Yesterday had enough sorrows yesterday, but we tend to forget that. If the present trouble is pressing and hard, we might be tempted to think it would be nice just to go back. But God's mercies are new every day. Don't long for tomorrow either. Sometimes we try to escape today's difficulties by imagining what life might be like tomorrow. Our impulse is that thinks that circumstances will always just improve over time. We conjure up images of the conflict magically sorted and resolved, the sickness miraculously healed, the work miraculously finished, the children all grown up and living happily somewhere else. We tend to think, you know, if I graduate, then I'll be happy. If I get married, then I'll be happy. If I have a baby, then I'll be happy. If I get through mothering these little ones, I'll feel rested. If I survive my teenagers, then I'll be free. If I get through this trial, my life will be good. We always think, look, eventually, if I just get through it, then tomorrow I can be happy. But it's not true. For always imagining a trouble-free future, you'll never be able to appreciate what you have today. Sufficient for the day is his own trouble, and sufficient for the day are God's gracious gifts of joy. So the trick is to live expectantly today. If we are living for the future or planning for the past, we live ourselves in limbo. We cannot heed the well-known exhortation in Psalm 118. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. For me, the biggest turning points in bad days aren't changes in circumstances, but in how I see those circumstances. It can be a fight, a continual returning to the place of prayer, but when I see him, I see that this day is from him and by him. I may not understand my problems any better, but I'm prepared to keep going. There is a reason. This is the day that the Lord has made. There's a plan for it. He's doing something in it. I don't understand it, but I know Him. So I trust Him. And we anchor ourselves then in the greatest ever day. A single day over 2,000 years ago, God sent His perfect Son to die for our sins. He took our greatest trouble, the wrath of God that we deserved, and he took it upon himself. He bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. He lifted our burdens. So no matter what sorrow we may be feeling today, we can sing when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, that has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate, shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that no sermon in and of itself is enough to cure uh, discouraged hearts. 
Lord, only an encounter with who you really are. And your per, you in perspective is going to get us anywhere. And so, Lord, I pray that, Lord, that beyond the message, beyond the songs tonight, Lord, that there will be in our hearts this softening and an opening of our eyes and our hearts, Lord, to see you as you really are. The circumstances will melt away and the trials, Lord, while they are still there, will pale in comparison to who you are. Lord, that there might be hope for the hopeless tonight. Lord, that there be comfort to the suffering. Lord, that those who are discouraged tonight might find an anchor for their soul. And so, Lord, we pray this in your precious name. Amen.